Welcome to Ethical Machines. We are your hosts, Olof and Samin. Ethical Machines is a series of conversations about humans, machines, and ethics. It aims at sparking a deeper, better informed debate about the implications of intelligent systems for society and individuals. For this episode, we invited Max Niederhofer. Let's dive in. So yeah, I mean, thanks for making the time. This no is really, really great. Uh, maybe for our audience to, to get to know you a little bit, could you, in your own words, give an introduction of who you are and how you got where you are today? So I'm a general partner with an early stage European venture capital firm called Sunstone. We're four partners. We do seed and series A financing across Europe. The way I got there was um, I founded a company straight out of university that was doing weblogging across Europe, um, so allowing people to start their own blogs. This was in 2002. Um, ran it, eventually got sold, um, and I took a bit of money and started angel investing. Um, and I enjoyed that a lot. My first angel investment was Last.fm, which did very well. Um, and then I said, you know, I want to try and make this into a career. So where do I learn Know how to professionally invest. I joined a firm called Atlas Ventures, stayed there for three and a half years, then took another break to, to be an entrepreneur, then joined Axel Partners um, in London, um, spent a bit over a year at Axel, and uh, in the end was made an offer by Samsung to become a partner there. Um, it's a smaller firm, you know, more early stage uh, at the beginning of building businesses, and that, that's kind of what I'm passionate about. So in the VC business or game, in a sense, what do you enjoy most about it? Um, I think the most satisfying thing for me is watching the entrepreneur grow. So we back a lot of guys that have not seen that much life, but they're inspired to do you know, a certain thing. And then it kind of takes off. Um, they start hiring people and you see them grow as leaders. Um, some of them become more thoughtful. It's an incredibly stressful environment, which is why there's so much depression as well in, you know, in the startup scene, right? Because these are all kind of alpha type people who really want to achieve. And then, you know, sometimes they just have a string of, Kind of failures that are not anyone's fault. It's just the market giving feedback on a product, mm-hmm. but they take it very personally. And and kind of helping people through that cycle of, of which is really this emotional roller coaster of a startup, I think is very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish, you know, looking back, I mean, I studied um, you know, what's now called management science, you know, but you know, I, I wish I'd studied psychology or, or right, like, or it's because you do have this therapist kind of kind of relationship sometimes, which can be helpful. So looking ahead, you also recently tweeted, what I'm really missing from the current culture is a forward vision. There's lots of navel gazing, lots of nostalgia, lots of self-pity and gloom. Can you maybe elaborate what you, what you meant with it? I think purely from a venture capital point of view, yes, I can dream about kind of, you know, telepathy and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, creating consciousness in machines and stuff. But uh, that doesn't, you know, no one's going to compensate me for that, right? So the way I'm incentivized, um, which is the way the system works, is that I have to build companies that have you know, real revenue that solve a real problem. I intersect companies when they have built a solution to a problem and there is some sort of proof that it is worthwhile. So to some extent, right, like I try to anticipate the future and based on that, I, I tell myself, well, this is a company that I consider long-term interesting or not. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of kind of the past in the decisions that we make because we have seen so many businesses that have failed there's a certain amount of pattern recognition that just goes on um, where you say okay well this type of founder with this type of problem right and these type of metrics they are likely to fail in the next six to 12 months even if i give them more money now um, and you know for better or for worse those are heuristics you know very human kind of heuristics that um you know, that people make decisions on um, and 
you know, I, is that the best way to allocate resources in the economy? Well, you know, in 20 years, it's like the answer to that is probably going to be different, right? Um, today, that, that's kind of the way it, um, it works. And we have to hope that, you know, from an economical perspective, those, it's pretty good resource allocation. Do you anticipate a future where we can use machine intelligence to help the VC decision-making process? So I think one, I think I think a lot of people have tried um, and have been disappointed. And uh, I think, you know, with every cycle of where we get a bit better, um, I think people are going to try again. Mm-hmm. And um, we certainly have a project kind of internally to um, to help us make decisions, to do kind of, you know, uh, to, to, to be able to look at the business profile and the founder profiles and, and look at the metrics and, and predict, you know, what is the what is the chance of success here? It's hard to put timelines on it, right? But do I think that in you know twenty five years, um, optimal resource allocation should be done by humans and venture capital? Probably not. So I, I sincerely hope that you know the the woolly part of it is going to go away, and it's not just the issue is not just the individual individual person's heuristics that already has a lot of bias, right? But then you introduce a group of people in, into it, right? All with their individual biases. Um, you know, there's groupthink. Right? Mm-hmm. There are kind of dynamics within groups that mean that you know not every decision is is likely optimal based on the data. Mm-hmm. Right? That may or may not yield a higher kind of you know um, success rate. Right? Because you know sometimes like you're you know more aligned with the zeitgeist, right? And um, and and actually the data would you know point you in the wrong direction. But I I think um, I think algorithms will be able to make better decisions in that platform. Currently, in, in the especially mobile space, uh, a lot of these apps seem to be focused on delivering greater convenience to the consumer. Yes. In science, we found, or in the arts, that um, a lot of the breakthroughs, if you track them for history, they don't necessarily come from greater convenience, but from suffering, pain. Yes. Uh, and so, so how do you approach this uh, when you, you know, confront with evaluate mobile apps, etc.? So, I mean, I think for us, like, it's a hard question. The, um, the shortcut to building a good business is to solve the problems of rich people, right, to the point of where they're willing to give you money for it. And convenience, right, is, is something that especially kind of affluent people like because it saves them time and they can compensate that, you know, with money, right? And these tend to be kind of time poor, you know, money-rich consumers. It's clear that when an entrepreneur thinks about a problem that, Solving issues for convenience is just something that um, tends to yield good outcomes. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you kind of take a larger view of it, it's it's relatively dangerous because you know you are not just doing something that doesn't really move the needle much, but you're really focusing on a segment of society um, that is already consuming quite a lot. But you know that's not necessarily optimal resource allocation from a human progress kind of view, right? Like it's probably going to move GDP more than anything else but but from a human progress kind of view we're, we're working on the wrong thing um, if you look at the large companies that have been built in tech arguably all of them have kind of a convenience aspect but that's not their main focus right like whether it's kind of Facebook where it's really about sharing with your family and your friends if you look at Google it's really about kind of being able to access organized information if it's Netflix it's really being able to consume entertainment at the point in time when you want to consume it right you can make a case that there's a convenience act, um, but it's more than that, right? Like, to, to some extent, kind of the vision of those companies has, has transformed from, from really that to saying, okay, well, you know, we are actually touching the fundamental value chains of how things get built. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a very interesting question. On a Google scale, obviously, it's, it's easier to address 
the fundamental human yes. uh, value they deliver. That's quite clear. But what happens if, it, let's say, we're sitting here in, in Berliner Cafe and you're having the tenth meeting in a day with an app developer that is presenting you the new cat detection algorithm for your mobile phone? Uh, how do you approach this? Where was the line there? Where do you see the potential of something that could escalate from convenience into necessity? In a sense? I think for technology, the, the, the interesting questions are like how versatile is what you're developing, right? Like, so if you think about language as a first technology, or, or maybe a knife, right? Like. Sure, sure, there's a convenience aspect to it, but, but really it's the versatility of it that makes it so interesting because it's so universally applicable to so many things, right? But, you know, the way I approach a lot of these um, companies is that I ask myself, you know, given that it is a network economy, there's zero marginal cost of, of information, replication, distribution, and so on. Um, does this company actually have a sustainable competitive advantage somewhere, right? Like, you know, and frequently that is, um, it is because um, it is a network of some sorts, right? There's, there's data that's being contributed, there's data that's being consumed. They transform something in the middle that kind of makes it work. And those are what I think are the interesting companies, right, from a mobile point of view. Um, and that, like, if you, if you look at information age as it's progressed over the last, you know, 60, 70 years, You've seen that with the wave of the internet, these are the companies that have the most staying power. So I think that's kind of the first way I, I look at it. And those companies that tend to build these network kind of platform businesses are also the ones that have the most potential to come up with something that actually furthers it beyond convenience. Mm -hmm. So, so if we zoom in a bit on the kind of the companies we are mainly interested in, machine learning, AI companies. So there is a tremendous excitement in the AI space. Um, so it's kind of complex space to unpack of AI, how do you approach this field as a VC and what are kind of things you tend to look at? So, I mean, I think from a venture perspective, you know, the whole space actually is, um, for, for me at least, it's taken a significant shift in how I look at businesses. You know, even kind of going from what I would call deterministic to more probabilistic kind of software takes a change in thinking. Um, and, uh, you know, if you don't have a deep engineering background, if you haven't used these things, right, it can take bit of time to kind of make that transition. Um, the other thing that's kind of concerning from a venture point of view is that AI has been overhyped, you know, probably three times or so in its career, right? And um, and I quite like that we're not talking primarily of machine learning, probably to hedge that a little bit, but we are slightly getting ahead of ourselves as well, right? Like it's, um, it's a wonderful segment to get ahead of itself because it has so many implications for um, humanity and, you know, our understanding of ourselves um, and, and being creative beings and, and consciousness and so on. Um, so I really like that angle of it, but you have to be very careful that you don't overweight that from kind of an investment decision point of view. And then the, the third kind of worrying aspect is probably that um, because of you know those network effects in platforms, a lot of the money that is going into machine learning is inside large corporates. Um, so we're talking kind of Google, Facebook, Amazon, Baidu, and a bunch of others. And um, um, the challenge with that is these are companies that have access to enormous amounts of proprietary data, which tend to make their outcomes probably more interesting than someone who's training on the same data sets that, uh, that are available to the public. At the same time, I think, you know, those guys are very much focused on their own problems, right? And so I think as a VC, you try to look at um, the niches that people are addressing at the same time, you have to be a little bit careful because, you know, we've been seeing a lot of teams that are, from a machine learning point of view, I think are, it's very basic, right? Like someone's invented chalk in the blackboard, and these are guys that are just kind of drawing the chalk in the blackboard. And it's not really moving the state of the art in any way. And they're, 
there's a real question whether, you know, a machine learning kind of API for vertical X is really such an interesting business. And I currently believe that it's probably not. I mean, how do you actually see the role of the human in a future where AI progresses steadily on? And we'll get to, let's not talk about strong AI, but even, you know, like good narrow AI. Yes. And how do you see the role of humans in, in that equation? So to some extent, right, I, I mean, I think as, a, as an industry, we should be quite um, careful to preserve one principle that, that seems to have um, uh, come to the forefront in the last 20 years, which is we democratize kind of access to technologies for the end user. And I think the whole point of the large technology companies has been we put the user into the driving seat, right? The secret behind success of something like Salesforce is that actually, you know, this is software that is directly usable by the end user. They can take out a credit card, they can pay for it, and then that software goes to work for them. So from an idealistic point of view, I wish as we move into more and more tasks being, being automated, I would wish that we're able to build software that puts that power of automation in the hands of the individual user so, so I think we have to, like, there's some training there that needs to happen, but I mean, ideally we could get people to the point of where they're actually able to use, whether you want to call them bots or wh- whatever, right, that are able to perform different tasks for them. And I think kind of, you know, again, engineering, like computer science engineers kind of point the way a little bit because, you know, when faced with repetitive and boring tasks, right, we probably spend more time kind of trying to automate that task than actually performing it, which is... Great, and I think you know many other people want to do that as well. Now we'll come against that wall of like, is that actually possible? And a lot of kind of attempts, you know, even that automated stuff on Mac, right? Like, haven't really performed. Um, that would be, I would, I would hope that that is the case. Now, in the absence of that, I think the only answer is regulatory. Um, and I think you know um, a lot of people like Albert Wenger and USB have talked about this, right? And the answer is there needs to be some form of kind of a basic income for people that that just says, you know, we're simplifying the benefit system, recognizing that a lot of people are going to be out of full-time work. Um, And I think as an industry, we have to be cognizant of the fact that we have to provide kind of work marketplaces for these types of people as well. Mm -hmm. To some extent, that's happening. What you don't want to have this bifurcation into a society where people are kind of smart enough to work with algorithms and other, other people are just, you know, not contributing to the economy at all. Right. Well, um, do you yeah. see a substantial risk for that to happen? I mean, I think it's a very substantial risk. Yeah. yeah. So we really have a two-class society uh, marked by the ones with AI access and the ones without. I think it's a scenario. I wouldn't want to put numbers on it on how likely it is. Sure. Um, the past lesson says this is probably not going to happen. Right. The past lesson is we invented the vacuum cleaner and we're very worried about kind of women sitting at home and having nothing to do with the housework. Right. Like, you know, that didn't really happen. Right. People seem to be able to, you know, are, people are very good at making work for themselves. Um, could this free up a substantial portion of humanity to kind of spend time on interesting things and like be creative and like, yes, in an ideal world, absolutely. But, you know, there's a reason that capitalism has worked um, to the extent that it has worked, um, which is that is, you know, it, it is good to introduce constraints, right? People are creative when there are constraints. People are, you know, people work hard when they, you know, when they pursue, you know, economic goals that can benefit themselves and their families. So I think the, the interesting question is at what point do we want to make an attempt, right? Right now, like, I mean, you know, the free markets have failed to a large extent, right? Like we have, we, even in the U.S., right? I'm, I'm always 
surprised at how much regulation there actually is. Right? I walked into a nail studio where my wife was sitting the other day, and you know, every single person cutting nails in that studio has a license from New York State. Right? And so there's a lot of regulation. The question is a little bit, you know, could we regulate better with algorithms? Was the problem of socialism primarily that the planning was crap? Right? <laughs> is, is that actually the, the ideal kind of like optimal resource allocation within the economy? And ideally, you do this thing bottom up because if you do it top down, you, you end up you know, in, the, in the higher kind of surf problem again where you, you kind of edge into totalitarianism. But, but if you kind of have it come from bottom up, that there might actually be an interesting system that emerges um, that allows people to contribute to the economy in their own way. So, It's the tricky one. It is. Um, there's a, a precedent in the 70s driven by the cybernetics revolution of the 50s and 60s. I think it was the government of Allende in uh, Chile who decided to invite one of the eminent professors in cybernetics at the time, uh, Bayer. His assignment to this man was build us a cybernetic society that is end-to-end -end based on algorithmic principles. And it, it's a beautiful story to follow. But nevertheless, I think... There's a lot to be discovered there, maybe as well for startups, this kind of algorithmic regulation. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people are talking right now about, about um, you know, these people who are switching between different work marketplaces, like be it Uber, Lyft on the transportation side or kind of, you know, um, you know jobs marketplaces that, that you know, I mean, these are the migrant laborers of today, right? It's, it's a tough life, but it's, it's possible to survive on it. Um, should they have some form of union-type representation or should they have some form of you know, quick decision-making of am I going to drive a cab today or am I going to go and you know, help with the harvest? And I think there are algorithms that should be developed. Right? So I think that, that part of it is interesting. I think it's a bit future-y in, uh, in the sense that it probably won't be put into place in the next year or two. But um, I mean, I think building kind of these work marketplaces is a very interesting um, field still. Yeah, so maybe maybe this links well to another question. Um, explore these scenarios a bit further and say, okay, in the ideal case, like how, how would society look like in, in 100 years? Is, is this something you're thinking about at all? Or I'm not sure I'm the best qualified or even kind of the best science fiction writer person to, uh, to, to answer. Um, you know, that said, like, I think, you know, there are several kind of perennial wishes of humanity, right? Like, One, probably the, the most pervasive fear is that of death, right? So can we achieve immortality using kind of a hybrid human computer um, form, right? Uh, can you upload your consciousness into, you know, into something else and thus exist forever with, you know, very low resource need? I think that's number one. I think number two, you know, the biggest wish for people during their life is, you know, to, to love and be loved and, um, and have full acceptance, right? Like unconditional acceptance from another human being. Um, and I think to some extent, right, like if you're able to merge one person in, into a machine and then you, you know, you touch that consciousness to another person and you're completely able to understand them, um, my, uh, potentially very Catholic slash Buddhist kind of understanding of that is that that results in love, right? Because you're able to fully comprehend that person. So you accept that kind of spark of, And I hesitate to call it divinity, but spark of common humanity kind of like between people. So I think that's kind of the, the second one. Um, and I think then the third large human topic is the wish to um, discover, explore, understand, you know, it's really about kind of like pushing the frontier a bit further. Um, and I think kind of if you're able to unite humanity and consciousness, 
upload it into a computer, use very few resources, right? Be not dependent on kind of oxygen and, 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 and physical food, right? I mean, that opens up the exploration of the universe to humanity, right? And so in that path, we'll come to a much better understanding of humanity. Um, I kind of feel that, that having had that emotional experience of life um, is something that we can contribute to learning machines. Yeah, but this, this is really interesting in a sense. You know, Google as an example, one of the chiefs in the AI team, Ray Kurzweil, obviously is um, thinking about these things. But I feel you're, you're almost reflecting it from a slightly European perspective. Am I? I think so. No, I think you're probably like, I mean, I, listen, um, I think Ray's probably better renaissance man right than i am and i think he's conscious of a lot of these things but he also has an audience that doesn't care that much about it i think the european audience kind of does care about um you know uh, why are we doing these things and, and and you know kind of embedding them a little bit in the in the culture that we come out of mm-hmm. um i think if you're if you were discussing this in africa you know the like the ability to some to, you know to put ubuntu into action right like i think what kind of <laughs> gets uh, you know we reap a lot of applause, right? So I think these are common themes, right? And, and the way you couch them, the way you talk about them is probably just cultural. You know, there was a recent article in a you know, quite highly respectable magazine, Bloomberg, which basically was reporting that there is a growing number of developers and researchers, mainly in San Francisco, who are, you know, rediscovering uh, things like psychedelics, LSD, uh, to do things like microdosing. Uh, to improve their cognitive capability, but also to kind of, um, you know, find maybe new ways uh, of, of creatively exploring problems, which kind of ties back to the 60s computer uh, revolution. What, what do you make of this trend? Does this happen maybe in Europe as well? Or um, So listen, I mean, that Steve Jobs quote, of, I think he said taking LSD was one of the most important things that I've done in my life. I mean, I think that tells you quite a lot about um, about that experience. Now, the microdose thing, I, have no, I don't know. I have not experimented with it. But I think generally the prohibition against drugs has been a failure. Um, I think it is scandalous that um, you know uh, societies that that say that we are free, that are liberal enough to allow us to do lots of different things, have kind of cut out access to this for fear of some sort of unknown. Um, and I think whether it's kind of LSD or psilocybin or mescaline or you know DMT, right? They there are substances that are actually interesting because they cause um, states that allow you to see something. Now, the question is kind of whether it is an illusion or not, or whether you're actually in touch with your deeper self. Um, but from a um, you know a perspective of kind of mental health disorders, right? Um, I hesitate to say mental health disorders because, to some extent, you know, it's it's. Um, it's actually good to be not particularly well adjusted to this world sometimes, right? So um, exploring with that and, and, and making people kind of see what their purpose in life is, see a deeper meaning in things, potentially kind of romanticizing it a little bit to to make life easier on them because it can be quite hard. I mean, I think those are very interesting things. Um, so as we do research into consciousness, I do think um, psychedelics have a big part to play and a much bigger part than since they were prohibited. And um, whether I don't necessarily think it's a good idea to, um, to self-test these things, even microdoses, because the risk of a psychosis is actually not completely low, right? Um, if I talk to kind of our life science partners on the other side of the aisle, um, they are very wary of this stuff. But I think um, at least getting it into research labs and, and doing work on it from an academic point of view, I think is very important. 
can you envision a future where the AI research and more the consciousness side of things would, would, would cross paths in, in a sense? You know, when I worked, first got into the tech industry, I think that's probably the better perspective. There was still a lot of this um, hippie counterculture left because we had invented, well, we use a bit much, but there was a machine invented that would allow you to communicate with the world, um, that would allow you to be creative, you know, more creative than any humans have been before you. So this was an amazing leverage for kind of human beings. And, and the vision of that was like, wow, if we can all talk to one another, if we can all exchange um, data at such a speed, um, if there's no cost to any of this, right, this is potentially what we can build a new society on. Mm. Now, that has gone away a little bit um, as we've um, primarily migrated to devices where you are more in the consumption paradigm than the production paradigm, right? But I think there is a resurgence in interest, um, and I think that needs to be supported. So to some extent, if psychedelics can inform the engineers um, about what type of consciousness they believe they have, and that is the type of consciousness they are building towards, I would be totally fine with that. But that is probably a political statement, because I kind of... <laughs> if, if the LSD t- tells the guy developing the AI that he is one with the tree, that is par- probably a positive thing for like a computer intelligence to think. <laughs> you know, there are other people that would probably disagree with that. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a segment of the self-help industry, like Headspace, yes. that, uh, and they seem to be heading down that direction as self-tracking, but in a mindful way, right? Do you find it interesting? That's Super interesting. I think I think that space itself is like is it's fascinating. I think Headspace has done a relatively good job. A friend of mine's running a business in uh, in New York called Path, which is kind of a you know more of a physical meditation meetup kind of business um, where they where they take different strands of meditation, kind of morph it into like as they say westernized, but but something that is kind of more convenient, more accessible for for Western cultures. And I think all of that is um, extremely interesting. And I I think there's a you know that initial group around kind of Timothy Leary and Ram Das and so on, you know, their writings are, are coming back into, you know, um, cultural consciousness and, um, and are being used for different things. So I think um, to some extent that mental health stuff is a reaction to how, um, you know, profoundly sick society is in some segments. And I don't accept the tech industry from that. Um, uh, to another extent, it's kind of like, you know, people have understood that it's very important to exercise your body and now, it is to some extent important to exercise consciousness. It is a reaction to kind of the secularization of society and the fact that you know you talk to most people in the tech industry and they're like, Yeah, I'm an atheist because it's super cool. And then you're like kind of like, Yeah, but you know, I mean research shows that like fifty to sixty percent of people have this God shaped hole in their, in their heart, right? And they need to do something with that, right? So I, I mean I think there are kind of layers of why it's useful and, and interesting. Um, I think as we approach the problem of, of consciousness analytically, um, you know, it is able to inform certain research If you made it this far, thanks for listening. And also, we would really love to hear your comments and any kind of feedback. So drop us a line at info at ethicalmachines.com. See you next time. Adios.